So it's about weighing your options and saying, for the greater good, what am I evading here? And being cognizant 100% about it and honest about what it is that you're doing and to what ends. We are here today with Sam Badu, who is a serial social entrepreneur who left behind the familiar hustle of building businesses and communities in West Africa to become part of a new generation of changemakers in the Midwest of America. Right now, he is co-founder at Restart, where he leads a team of passionate people reinventing the way people find and grow careers. And personally, I've gotten to know Sam. He's uh He's, he's partners with a really good friend of mine, Chad Silverstein. And I, I've kind of watched Chad's journey uh, as he's kind of been in a number of coaching worlds that I'm in. Um, specifically, what comes to mind for me now is strategic coach, where Chad and I both got this concept of um, who, not how. And um, you're an incredible who for Chad and together, I think you're who's for each other, which is kind of the point, um, collaborative uh, models where, where you can really bring your unique abilities to a project. And, and then, you know, what's possible from there is amazing. I think you guys are an incredible example of that. Just, just again, before we kind of hop in any further, Sam uh, has uh, kind of tracked me down on a number of occasions. He's, he's an ambitious uh, guy who knows how to find his way around community and really connect to people that he wants to get to know. And I've just really appreciated that about you and your curiosity and your kind of, you know, hunger and thirst for life, uh, both uh, in work and in life. So anyway, um, welcome. It's uh, great to have you here. Thank you, Brett. Thank you. I appreciate that you mentioned that piece of it, which is um, the connections. So there's there's a number of reasons why that is important. One, I'm just a kid from Accra, Ghana, who ended up in Columbus, Ohio. And the interesting part and the connecting piece there is Accra is sister cities to Columbus. I didn't know that before. I got here and then realized that. And it just happens to be that coincidence that also became that connecting piece for me. So Columbus feels like home. I get very defensive about it. And then the second part about that connection is really looking at people who are changing the world and wanting to be connected to that philosophy, that idea of wanting to do things differently. And I've told you this before. Years before I met you, I sat across looking at you put up this building and that was an interesting piece for me. And how we ended up getting connected is serendipity and it also is a testimony to the fact that connections matter and they are created for a reason. Yeah, so this this is great. I mean, I'm a big believer in that and you use the word serendipity and, and there are a lot of different ways to describe it. Some people think it's coincidence. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I believe that, you know, things are kind of always at work. There's a grand architecture and it's constantly working and working for our benefit. And so there, there feels like a kind of mutual, you know, like you said, serendipity or, or maybe in, in my world, you know, the universe is at work and, and getting to know you and, and the dots that you've connected 
um, along the way uh, in in meeting me is interesting. And and you know, I think we're kind of just figuring out where all of this is going. But but I want to really kind of stick with that thread. You know, even the the fact that Columbus is a sister city to, to a city in, in Ghana that that you end up here not knowing that feels pretty. Uh, kind of universally aligned. So, so talk to me a little bit. Um, let, let's go all the way back to the beginning. I, I want to hear a little bit about your early childhood, your your life in Ghana. You know, before we get to Columbus, I want to know kind of about the beginning. Tell tell me kind of you know how all of this started for you. Your earliest recollections of of your life. That is a super powerful question. Um, and it's one of those things that I, I've rarely spoken to people about. Um, dug in. most people know me as uh, someone who was born in Africa, moved here relatively recently, just about five years. But up until I was 17, I grew up in Accra, Ghana. I lived in a small city called Tema, which is... Um, along the coast. And life, life for me was great. Uh, my parents weren't rich, but we had a really, really full childhood. The way we grew up was different. For me, that was running around playing soccer with lots of kids. So long as you made it back home at six o'clock, everything would be fine. We had this freedom about us. And also, my parents were entrepreneurs, both of them, which sort of later on would matter to me and my own life. What were they doing? So my mom was a caterer. She had her own uh, restaurant business. She made food, um, catered for parties and events. Uh, My dad used to be uh, an insurance salesman. And sometime in 1992, he wanted to change the way people found the country, Ghana, Accra in particular, because he was gone, he was born in Accra, and he was very traditional. So he had spent a lot of time traveling, um, lived in a bunch of places, spoke over six languages, um, same as me. And he started his own tour company. So he started a traveling tour company, which was very new at that point in time. But that also launched what became my vision of the world. I grew up being exposed to a lot of people from different countries. He was a visiting professor at Penn State University doing their African Studies program. So every year he hosted um, a group of students from either Vanderbilt University, uh, Penn State, or a few other universities coming together, discovering Accra and discovering Ghana. And it created that yearning to want to move beyond my immediate surroundings. And that's how it was for me growing up. Did you have siblings? Yeah, I have um, one younger brother and one younger sister. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was the oldest kid, so everybody is always looking up to me to sort of make that way, Mm -hmm. which also came with a lot of responsibility. Mm -hmm. We didn't have it easy at all. My dad was a no-nonsense, nothing belongs to you so long as you didn't work for it. So very early on, 
he told me, everything you want in life, you're going to have to get, period. When you say early on, like, do you remember how old you were? I was probably 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a story that uh, sort of anchors that. We all had chores to do at home uh, growing up. Every morning, I had to wake up and sweep the yard, sweep the outside of the house, clean up and make sure that my siblings were ready to go to school. We went to school super early. We walked to school. Now, it was normal. No school bus was going to come pick you up and take you anywhere. But we were also lucky. We went to private school. Now, one Saturday... I did not do my chores. And it was lunchtime. My dad said, you will not have the chance to eat unless you're doing your chores. You're not paying rent. You gave her to me. I don't have to pay rent. <laughs> uh, I felt like that was what the deal was. It's and funny. You- I'm laughing a little because um, I think I might have used that line once or twice <laughs> with my own kids. Interesting. Um, and, 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 you know, um, in my uh, world today, it's, it's definitely said with a clear sense of, of kind of lightness and laughter and, and you know, not, not intensity because I grew up with a very, very kind of intense, demanding um, father um, abusive that, you know, would say stuff like that where it wasn't funny at all. Um, but, but the messaging, the point I think has some validity. Um, and so, you know, just to not to interrupt you, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, what that, what was that like for you? Was it, was it when you're a child and you're, you're hearing those things, you know, were you, was, was that traumatic? Was that, um, enlightening? Was it scary? Was it challenging? Like, how how did that? How were you with that kind of messaging? It was extremely challenging. It's this competition that you never think you should have. And going back to that story, on that Saturday, he picked up my food and threw it down the drain. Mm-hmm. And I got into a, I got into what was a fight at that time with my dad. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, if you think you're man enough, walk out of my house and don't come back. Mm-hmm. Verbally, you're in a fight yeah. with him, yeah. And he asked me to leave. Mm-hmm. No joke about this. And I love my dad. We talk as often, but he was hard. Yeah. He was hard because he did not have it easy. His dad, I watched his relationship with my grandfather who died recently. And it was the same thing he was doing with me. You had to work for every day. So to answer your question, it was challenging, but it is the same challenge that has carried me through my life. And it makes me very aggressive to do the things that I want to do. Mm-hmm. Almost as if I'm proving myself to an invisible person who in reality doesn't exist. Because mm-hmm. I don't think my dad really sees that. But I always feel... I have to get to this point and then the next point and then the next. Yeah, and 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 thank you for sharing that. And you know, one of the main reasons that I'm doing this podcast is because I believe that we're in this kind of house of mirrors where we're all reflecting um, back to each other and learning from each other. We can see ourselves in 
other people's journeys. So your story, you sharing uh, vulnerably is really powerful because other people are having the same exact experience. And, and, and so I'm curious in that, what you just said, this, this kind of um, messaging that you got from your father, this experience, the story that you shared and how that served you or not served you, but, but it's been part of your programming. It's run. I don't know um, how conscious you were to that, that, that kind of programming that, that we all take on you know, as, as children. It's just normal. Tell me a little bit about kind of how you see that as, is it serving you? Is it, does it feel like you're conscious to it? You're able to really decipher when it's running and, and running for your benefit or when maybe it's kind of like you're proving yourself constantly because of this, uh, you know, childhood experience. It is always running. The only thing that has changed is my awareness of it. Where it serves me is when it comes to doing new things, trying new things, ignoring the status quo, um, and really feeling constantly motivated. Where it doesn't serve me is the dissatisfaction that I have with everything around me. Um, I think it's become more glaring recently um, in my interactions with people. I hold zero attachments to anything physical. Um, I don't have a favorite anything. I love people. Connections are pretty much the only thing that stand out to me. I don't care about clothes. I don't care about um, the house that I just bought. None of that. Because everything is just another checkbox on the journey to getting to the next point. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't serve me. I don't mm-hmm. enjoy anything with the exception of the people that we're really helping. And yeah. that's why Restart works for me. Yeah, cool. Really, really want to just acknowledge you for sharing that. Because, you know, again, you know, we're all on a journey, uh, a journey that, that might be never ending depending on, you know, kind of how deep we want to go with that conversation. But, but how old are you? I'm 30. Yeah. So you're 30 years old. Um, you're, you're on the journey. I, I would say you're like way more aware and awake and conscious than most people I meet that are 30 years old, especially, and maybe much older. Um, so knowing, knowing what's not serving you is so profound uh, because you've got the ability then to decide how you want to continue to shift and adjust and align mm-hmm. um, so that it is. Uh, so thank you for saying that. L- let me kind of just go back. I want to um, kind of continue on with your your journey. This is all really wonderful. I appreciate it uh, again. And I know our, our listeners will too. So you're a kid, you're in Ghana, you're having this experience with your father, you're learning, it's shaping you. He's telling you, you know, walk out or not. Tell me kind of like what happens from there, you know, tell me about how you continue to, you know, mature from a uh, child to a young adult and, and so on. So there's this belief that I carry that um, by the time we're 18, most of us already have 
the most important pillars of who we're going to become taking place. The next step for me from there was at 14 when I went to boarding school. So I went to a British prep school uh, at a Saddle College about three and a half hours away from home. I went to a boarding school for three years. And this is a rite of passage for anybody who grows up in Ghana. Um, my school is over 100 years old, history of traditions. And that was a big thing. It is not a soft core school. So you don't get pampered in boarding school. You don't get protected in boarding school. It is 1,500 boys between the ages of 14 and 18, some older, more or less, coming together without their parents to define who they're going to be for the rest of their lives. It is amazing. I go to uh, Form 1, which is what we call it. Um, it's senior high school. So I go to Form 1, and your very first day, it's like hazing. It is hazing. Who's hazing you? Your seniors, mm -hmm. your teachers. Teachers too. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. like, How? It's a very different culture. Yeah. So now it's getting a lot softer. Mm -hmm. But there's corporal punishment. So physical pain is a very much a part of it. From, from both the teachers and the students? Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you grew up with. I took lashes all my life. Mm -hmm. My mother beat me at home. My dad beat me at home. Mm -hmm. like, it was normal. Mm -hmm. Like Not having that is the exception. What, what kinds of things within the school environment would you get lashed for? Anything and everything. So with the teachers, it's pretty much your grades. Mm -hmm. It's um, your attitude. It's your dressing. So I went to, at a saddle, you had to wear a uniform. Everybody wears uniforms. In Form 1, you're going to wear um, white shirts, white pants. You wear a tie every night. I wore a tie for three years, and that's why I really don't like ties. Mm -hmm. In Form 2, you're going to move to khaki pants, um, brown, and then a white shirt. And then in Form 3, you wear um, black and white. And every night, you got inspected for your fingernails, your appearance how clean your uniform was, and you were wearing white, you are going to get dirty at some point in time. Remember, most of the roads are not paved. So it is raw dirt, mostly laterite, so it's red. And you're getting lashed for all of this. And in addition to that, you're getting punished by your seniors, the ones in Form 2 and Form 3, for anything, the way you walk. The very first question I got asked my first night in school was you really have three options when you come to the school. This is a senior talking to me. Um, you're either going to smoke weed. You're going to become super religious. Or you're going to become super smart. Which of these three are you going to choose? There is no right answer. So, so they're asking you that without any particular guidance as to which route to go? 
Oh, no. They don't care. It's up to you. They're just laying out the options for you. They're just laying out the options and everybody keeps an eye on you. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be a Christian, it means you have to be the guy who's going to church all the time. You have to attend all the Wednesday masses. It means you don't get in trouble. You hang out with the Christian boys. If you're going to be super smart, join the science club or the debating team or keep your grades up and don't mostly leave you alone because you're a nerd. And if you're going to be one of the bad boys, then pick and choose your crowd and stay in that crowd. You're going to be getting in trouble all the time, but you're going to be super popular and famous. Mm -hmm. Those were the options. I would have picked the smoke weed crowd at that time <laughs> in my life, but um, that's, a, that's a whole nother show. Tell mm -hmm. me, what did you pick? So I picked none of them. Uh, and that did not go well. Mm -hmm. I had a mark on my right wrist. Because um, this guy who was talking to me said, well, I'm going to give you a timer so you can remember that you're being watched and you're on the clock. So he took out a pen and drew a watch and he dug it into my flesh. Like he peeled back my skin. What are you thinking? I, was, I, was, I, was, I wanted to ask you this when you were talking about the lashing, but mm -hmm. with, with the physical abuse... And, and if you're comfortable kind of maybe describing, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's helpful just to kind of continue to peel back the layers if, if you're mm -hmm. willing to, as much as you're willing to. And I really, really appreciate this. And, you know, again, it's to your comfort level. But I, I think there are so many people out there that can relate to the abuse and the physical abuse. There, there's, you know, mental and physical abuse that's going on here. And I can relate to it. I, I know... You know, I, I've had that experience too. And I think it's really profound for people to hear the depths of it. Uh, I promise we'll move on. We'll talk about Columbus and restart at some <laughs> no, point. No, but but um, when, tell, us, tell me a little bit more about kind of both the specifics of the lashings and the physical abuse and, and what your thinking at the time, what you're conscious to, if you, if you were, if you can remember. I know in my case, it's very difficult for me to remember. What, what if you can, you know, wh where were you with all of that? What, what was going on and how were you being with it? So I'm very comfortable talking about this because um, I think the cultures are just different. So the way I see all of this and talking about this, I, I don't think it really um, glaringly um, affects me in that way. I don't have trouble talking about this because it was very normalized to me. Like I've been beating up since I was a kid and not, I'm not special. Everybody goes through this. So it's very normal. By the time you get to boarding school, you've been lashed all your life for being late to school, for not doing your homework for getting to dinner late. The worst beating I ever got from my mom was when I stayed out after 6 p.m. because I wanted to try out uh, martial arts. So there was a karate class that I didn't tell her I was going to go to. I followed my friends and went. I came home. She beat me with her slippers, the hanger, uh, the cane, like whatever she could find at that point in time. Because why are you coming home after 6 p.m.? Can, can you, if I can just ask, you know, for a second, what, 
I was because I was thinking about this earlier when you mentioned that as long as you're home by six p.m. and I, I kind of let it go, but it's come up now again. I, I want to make sure I um, explore this. Mm. Can you do you know what was underneath the six p.m. thing for your parents? Like, wh- what was that? Was it about just that they had a rule and you needed to follow it? Was there any danger that was potentially out there? Was it something from their childhood? Like, do you know what that was about? So it was pretty much a rule for almost every kid. Um, We don't have as much of a protectionist view on kids raising or growing up, like the way it is here in America. And even in some parts of Europe, it's really that flexible. We walk to school by ourselves all the way from age two, so long as you're going with other kids. And so 6 p.m. was the cutoff point for you to know that If your child gets home by six, everything is safe. Mm -hmm. After six, that's when parents start to get worried because it was a very common thing. Yeah. So it was a a safety. It was kind of a societal. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So kind of going back to the abuse. So let's go. You're used to it. Um, It was the norm. I am still a little intrigued with like the teachers. Like, you know, I get kids, parents, parents. Teachers, that that's that is foreign to me. I know it exists. I know it exists in a lot of, you know, kind of prep schools, religious schools. You know, has at least over over history. Mm-hmm. You know, tell me a little bit about like what that looks like. So, I'll give you the first answer. The teachers are supposed to shape you into a certain kind of person. My school. Adesado, um, alumni of Adesado are known as Santa Clausians, and there's a whole story to that. But my school is known for being a hardcore school. You don't go there to be a softie. It's a state of mind. It's a way you're molded. Every school has an identifying characteristic. My school was known for being where the hard boys go get shaped. So the teachers themselves... The hard boys. Tell, what does that mean? It means when you come out, you're mentally tough. Uh-huh. I was an Air Force cadet when I went to um, yeah. Arisado. Everybody had to be a cadet. So, so it's, it's not about like who's hard going in. It's not about troublemakers. Or it, it's about if you want to come out strong. Mm-hmm. And, and is that also connected to like going somewhere with your life? Yes. yes. So, so that's a decision that what your parents make or who, who kind of decides that, you know, you're, you're going into the, the school that's going to make you hard. So the way to get into all of the elite boarding schools are by your grades. So you have to score really, really well. So um, I was a science major in high school. And so I went there to study science. Um, I didn't opt for biology, but I did geography, um, physics, chem, and then math. So I got in with the high grades. But when you go there, you come out to be mentally strong. And your parents decide that. They decide what kind of school they want you to go. Sometimes for religious reasons. My mom was Anglican. So that's Episcopalian over here. So my school was um, an Anglican um, old school. They're Methodist schools. They're Presbyterian schools. They're Catholic schools. And so it could be because... One of your parents um, leans that way religiously. It could be because one of them 
was an alumni of the school. So they want you to continue. Just like here, if you went to Yale, you probably want your kids to go to Yale. It was the same thing, but within high schools. So that's how the choice is made. But to get in, you have to score high grades, kind of like getting into Harvard or trying to get there, but the high school equivalent of that. So that's the decision that gets you in there. Once you get in there, you have to uphold the characteristic of that school. Super smart or super strong. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, we're bouncing around a little bit, but, but I think this is kind of coming together. So teachers, they're making you hard. Mm-hmm. You're making these choices. You're choosing not to choose. I'm, I'm assuming those things are in conflict. Mm-hmm. And so then the abuse is really... It's leveled up, maybe if I'm, I'm guessing, you know, but both because that's the kind of mantra of the school is we're going to make you hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe because you're not really falling in line with a specific direction, it's it's kind of amplified. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was in a straight um, rule following kid. I've never been. Maybe I that's can, why we like each other. Yeah. I, <laughs> I find gray areas. I like to bend the rules. But at the same time, I like to stay smart. I like to hang around with the nerds and hang around with the kids that are breaking the school rules. I used to jump the wall all the time. I used to go into town when I wasn't supposed to without an exit um, or a permit. So I did all the things that the bad boys would do. Not all of them. I wasn't into drugs. Um, so, but I was also really good at my coursework. So I was a good um, math student. I was a good chemistry student. Um, I was really good at geography. I didn't do very well at physics, maybe because I didn't like the teacher. So that's kind of like the fine line. And so sometimes I'll be in trouble. Sometimes I'm not. And all of this shapes up into something else. And that's the second part of what I wanted to talk about where you move from being the person who is getting punished to the person who starts to punish. You perpetuate a culture that they've indoctrinated you into. Yeah, this is great because I wrote this note. um, I I think it said, um, did you do the same thing when you were a senior? I'm I'm fascinated then, you know, with, with what happens here, um, it sounds like you started to perpetuate the, the culture, but, but you know, I want to understand before we talk about that, what you were thinking about the culture when you were on the receiving end of it, before we shift to then you became part of the, the, the perpetuation of it, you know, was your experience of receiving it resistant, sad, you know, what would the emotions have been with it? Or did you, how long did you, did it take for you to see it as maybe something that was beneficial? You know, I'm not sure exactly, you know, kind of how you've reconciled all of this. So one thing I have to point out is the fact that none of this, I I have never used the word abuse. Nobody that I went to school with, um, maybe a few, would ever describe it as abuse. It was just normal. It was just the process of becoming a hardcore. That's what we called it. And how did I deal with it, reconcile with it? I started to get smart about it. 
So I know that um, I woke up late. Everybody's supposed to wake up at 5.45 and get ready for class. Um, I'll sleep in a little later. I'm going to miss general assembly. But I know that if I miss it and I go late, I'm going to get punished at the door. So what am I going to do? I'm going to miss it entirely. But they're going to do a roll call. So what I was doing was sneaking, bribing the person who's going to be doing the roll call. You start to get really crafty about rules. And you get really good at bending and manipulating the system to your benefit to get the least amount of punishment, but deriving the most pleasure from evading the system. And then when I became um, a senior, it became about how do you inflict the same level of pain to cause other people to become crafty, smarter, more shrewd, more aware of how to deal with things they find discomforting. Uh, discomforting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so let me ask you: When you start to feel that sense of, I don't know, curiosity about how you can then get other people to become the things that you're starting to become. Now, meanwhile, you're like what, seventeen, eighteen? Uh, I was like fifteen or fifteen, sixteen. 15 at that time, 16. Yeah. So, is that because you feel like it's been so? Um, good for you, valuable for you, that you you want to be of service. I mean, because you you almost make it sound like you know you have some sort of um, desire to have other people um, grow in the way that you have from these incidents. But it's hard for me to kind of separate. I understand this is the norm, mm-hmm. but but it, I'm I'm not sure that I wouldn't still say it's abuse even though it was normalized yeah. and there's it, it feels like and maybe this is just my projection but it feels like you're unconsciously just trying to shift the pain onto others more so than you're actually trying to you know get them to expand you know you're fit. absolutely right you're absolutely right and it is abuse we will not call it that but it is and these days is a lot different. Uh, schools are regulated a lot differently. Um, there's very little corporal punishment. There's very little of my experience. And when we look back as a point of pride, we kind of say this generation is softer um, than we were. My school was known and notorious for having a group of seniors break out and break into a police armory and stole guns to go cause a robbery. Like, that's While you were there? No, that was a couple of years before I got there. Uh-huh. That's the kind of mindset where people are constantly pushing the boundaries of how bad is bad. Mm-hmm. And, and, and how much of that, just for a second, you know, I want to kind of you know, move through this, but how much of that was like a deeply ingrained societal generational kind of pent up. Um, I, I don't know the history, but my assumption is that this is like a, uh, a generational historical kind of pent up need to rebel and like get out of some sort of 
you know, kind of societal struggle. I don't know if it's based on kind of the formalities and the, you know, kind of boxes that people were placed in. I don't know. Is, is there something to that? There is a lot to that. And we could dig into that in, in different layers. Um, I will say that there's, there's a history of coup d'etats with the last one being uh, close to, I think, 1989. Mm-hmm. And corporal punishments were a military thing. Even now, if you go on YouTube, you will see video documentation of how the military there um, indoctrinates people with the same kind of punishment. And so have, culturally, it's been normalized, normalized in our subconscious. And so it carries through that the way in which you get people to listen, to shape up, to do what the teacher wants them to do, the parent wants them to do, is to inflict pain. And it's wrong on so many levels. And you can peel back those layers and really see how mentally there are a lot of us walking around with abuses that we really haven't dealt with. And people deal with that in different ways as they grow. But yes, to answer your question, there is there is a lot of that. Okay, so... so um, and. I, I think there's a common thread here. You mentioned this kind of skill set that you were learning uh, that that your words were like evading the system, really learning kind of how to bribe or manipulate or navigate, you know, kind of the system so that you could kind of like almost optimize it for yourself the way you wanted it. Um, how, how, did that serve you or how do you see that today? You know, all of this, you know, you, you, you know, I'm glad to hear you call it abuse. I'm glad to hear that, you know, you, you felt like you were kind of shifting. I think, you know, I think you agreed that that was like a more of an unconscious shifting than really a teaching of others. You, you, you have this experience, you learn these skills, but you also, are taking on trauma. You know, there, there is abuse. There's a, there's a, a physical, a mental, a, a way that people are kind of pushing you, challenging you. You're taking something away from it. But what I'm curious about, and we'll kind of get to, you know, more present times, but curious about like right there, you know, and maybe even connect the dots to today. Um, you know, now or, or, or down the road here, how do you kind of take all of that learning and uh, decide what's actually really important and what's maybe not in alignment with, you know, your kind of soul, your essence? So there's so many different um connecting points to that. Um, And I'll I'll try to do it just as as much as I can. One of the pieces out of that whole experience that um, has really served me is how to build alliances. Mm. You go from being on the receiving end of punishment to seeing how you could get people on your side. The same seniors who were punishing me became the people that I was sharing my food with because I realized that 
after someone goes to smoke weed, had munchies, they're looking for food to eat. If you had something to share, you just made a friend. I'm glad to hear that's like a universe. The munchies are are prevalent in Ghana too. Yeah, it definitely is. (laughs) Uh, You can't escape that. And so there's those guys. And then there's also the Christian groups who tend to do a lot more trips because of the organizations that they're associated with. So you know that you don't have an ex yet. You want a way to go out. So I go hang out with that group and be able to go out. And then there's the super smart kids because I know I want to definitely make my good grades because it's not going to look good for me when I come home and for my reputation. So I know when to have people who are helping me to study and have those study groups. So I learned to build alliances and that has worked really, really well um, with me as I grew up. The other piece of that is learning to not take a no. A no is not a hard no. A no is a not right now, a maybe later. It's always on a scale. It's never a hard stop. And when I learned this, I learned that depending on who you're talking to and how you're talking to them and being able to understand them, you could move away from hardlining, forcing, manipulating, inflicting pain to get what you want to working with people. I went on to become head perfect, which is uh, um, like a senior student representative. And it's not just appointed to you. You actually have to campaign, win votes. And this is a school of 1,500 people. Your seniors, you do this when you're in your last term in form two, going to form three. So your seniors are going to be voting. Your juniors are going to be voting. And your own mates are going to be voting as well. And having to win alliances in all these areas, as well as doing the final interview with the teaching board and the board of directors of the school. Learning to understand all those people and bring them together, for me to end up being head boy of 1,500 students, having my own apartment when I was in high school, became something that was defining to me. That's where I really started to think of leadership and what it really means to work with people and not having people working for you. So yeah, and we'll explore um, in morning times on now how that is working as well. Okay, so so I see, you know, there's some learning there. The alliances, the um, not taking no. There's some learning, some growth, some leadership that you're um, really learning from. And so I guess what I'm hearing is that you figured out how to take all of that and use it for your benefit. There's again, I'm kind of coming back to this, you know, evading the system language that you used. You know, even the not the not um, taking no. I mean, there's some of this that could potentially, if used um, incorrectly, uh, really not work in in you know, kind of the way that the world the uh, world functions. Uh, have you been able to really? use it for your benefit or are there times where kind of the learning still from childhood in your adult life 
gets you in trouble or, or doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are crazy and um, I could tell you that off air, but <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Yes. And when you grow up in any African country, and I'm pretty sure even outside of that, corruption is a big thing. Corruption is ingrained in our system. I don't think anybody is going to be able to do away with it with the way our economic systems back home are set up. Everything is about grease and palms and serving short-term interests, bribing to get, even when you're trying to help someone, mm-hmm. you're trying to start a business. We were notorious for being a terrible place to do business because of all the different layers of bureaucracy. I'm trying to get a passport. You go to the passport office, you got to pay this person, this person, that person to something that you're entitled to. Mm-hmm. All of those things is what the culmination of evading the system is. Mm-hmm. Because if you want to be a stickler for the rules, you want to go through the process, the due process, or you're going to be waiting years to change anything. Mm-hmm. So it's about weighing your options and saying, for the greater good, what am I evading here? And being cognizant 100% about it and honest about what it is that you're doing and to what ends. Yeah, and understanding the consequences yeah. of those papers. I, I saw, um, I don't know if you've had a chance to see any of the uh, Edward Snowden kind mm-hmm. of Publicity. Least, He's yeah. got the his new book out, and I had a chance to see him in a live stream, and and he was talking about just the um, situation he was in, where he had this agreement with the NSA that he had signed, mm-hmm. and then he had, in his opinion, the Constitution, which governs the entire United States, and the two were in conflict. The, the, the agreement with the NSA said, you know, you can't speak to anything. But what he was seeing, he thought, was in violation of the Constitution, and he wasn't sure which he was supposed to. And, and so it might be a little bit different, but there's, I'm hearing kind of a similar thing. And, and I'm curious, you know, just how you then choose um, where you want to really honor yourself in all of that, you know, where, where you feel there's some kind of thread of integrity. Uh, that that you know guides you as opposed to the 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 laws or the uh, you know just how far you're willing to kind of push the limits. So I will say this: so long as it benefits the ordinary person, so long as I know that the ultimate goal is to make sure that that person who doesn't have the opportunity by my actions, would have achieved something greater than what they had to start with. That's where my integrity lies. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So you've got some guiding principles that, you, that are your own, that you really ground into. And I think this is like one of those things that, you know, as we move forward, we're kind of, you know, seeing your journey unfold. Uh, and one of the things that I want to really make sure we do in this conversation for our listeners is 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 kind of uh, share the things that have really helped you, um, not just the experiences, but then maybe you know the techniques, the hacks, the things that you do to actually use this experience you've had in life to um, guide you forward. 
And, and that's what I was hearing there, that you have um, some set of rules, maybe you've written them down. You know, we both have built a lead in common. Uh, and, uh, and, and so maybe that's come through some of your writing, but, but there's a, there's a, uh, a rule of sorts that you have, which is that you have to be in service at whatever you're doing, choosing, regardless of how that might violate some sort of expectation, rule, law, maybe, I don't know. Um, you, you know, it has to be for the benefit of others. Tell me a little bit about kind of, let's fast forward. You know, you, you go through school. Tell me what else maybe is important for you to share prior to you making the leap to come over here to Columbus or, or if it's, if you want to jump right to kind of how did you get here and and tell me about that Um, either way is okay. So at 17, when I graduated um, high school, um, I went back home and I did a, a year of voluntary service teaching for the Salvation Army. So I was an adult education teacher, uh, teaching math, English, and science to adults who had never had the opportunity to either complete their schooling or get any form of formal education. That was a very different thing to do. I was looking at people who were older than my parents. The oldest person in my class was a lady who was 70 years old. And she was doing her best to learn English, to learn the basics of formal math, to learn the rudiments of biology. And seeing those people strive to make more of themselves at that age when people could just resign themselves to, well, life has happened, I am where I am, it sparked something in me. And that became where my social consciousness was awoken. After that year, I was fortunate enough to have a United Nations scholarship to Morocco, where I ended up living for the next five years. I moved to a different country. First of all, everybody asked me, why the hell did you go to Morocco? It's 99% Arab country, Muslim, but it's still African, North African. People mostly didn't look like me. They looked more white than they did um, black. I didn't speak French. I didn't speak Arabic. I never took my French classes in high school seriously. So I go there and I have to establish myself. I have to make friends, learn about the culture. My first experience in the store, I was pointing at stuff, trying to buy something to eat. And that really got me out of myself, focusing more on the people around me connecting to them. I went on to build a fascinating relationship there with several people. But that was the process of me really learning how to relate genuinely to people. I learned Arabic. Um, I went on to learn French. I went to business school after that in Morocco. As one of the most uh, connected people in my university, I was on the committee that brought the second ever TEDx um, event 
to Morocco. The first one was in the American University at Al Quwain in Ifran. Uh, the second one we hosted at uh, my university, Mohammed Premier. And I was working with an entirely different sect of people, people that lived there. That was their community, but I had become a part of it. I went on to have uh, a daughter, Laura, in, in Morocco. And I had this whole life building different relationships and really focusing on people. And this affected or influenced uh, my choice of dissertation. I ended up writing two papers on social entrepreneurship. I just learned about Mohammed Yunus and the Grameen Foundation and how he had changed India and how people really looked at impact. And that informed my writing then. After that, I had the chance to come back with a group of friends to Ghana, and we started our first company, Heal the World. Heal the World was a learning process of building a business that had at its foundation empowering people and society to do more. Just tell me, because I'm, I'm curious to kind of track this. You're, you're how old when you start Heal the World? So uh, Heal the World with uh, Fred um, and VJ and uh, Jeff. I was 22, 23 at that time. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, you know, I just want to kind of like bookmark this. I'm, I'm, I'm like so uh, moved and inspired by how you're, like the word, just like you're a rock star. Like I have an 18 year old to think about, you know, a 22 year old, 23 year old who's done what you've done uh, by that stage in your life. I mean, most people, most people, and frankly, you know, I, I kind of feel like, and maybe this is like part of this like coddling of Americans or, you know, the societal shift. I, I'm, I'm probably guilty of it. I actually find often to be too much pressure and intensity to move kids. When I hear people ask my 18-year-old, who was a senior in high school going to college, they, they say, does he know what he wants to do? And it makes me cringe because I don't want him to know what he wants to do. I want him to just live and explore and not feel the need to um, be performing and excelling and figuring it out. But but you know, maybe that's generational. Um, maybe that's a reaction to my own life experience. But there's no doubt you were in a high, high performing uh, journey, trajectory of which you were accomplishing a tremendous amount. I mean, everything you've just mentioned through school, the, the, the kind of leadership positions that you were elected to, then to go to business school, to move away, to learn different languages. And now you're at 22, 23 years old, a part of a, a founding initiative to heal the world. I mean, th these are monstrous, you know, aspirational um, kinds of uh, leaps, uh, courageous. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to kind of like, you know, acknowledge that. Because you know what I think happens, and, and I think maybe this will kind of get to... Sam in Columbus, you know, I, I think you're making connections here. People are learning who you are. This kind of big footprint that you are 
that you have in your life and have the potential to really place down here in America and Columbus is becoming clear to me at least and to Chad and to others. But I don't know that when you make the leap across to an entirely new country, to a new world, to a new community, even to a city like Columbus that maybe in in some ways can be more challenging to, you know, um, be fully expressed in. In some ways, it's much easier to do that too. We can talk about that. But I think you could get lost here, you know? And so I'm seeing this rock star uh, history and hearing your journey. And I'm, I'm curious kind of like the experience of that and translating it now to today, to here, to now. So you, you're absolutely right. Um, that leap was not easy or delightful at all. Mm. And um, I could dig into that. But after Heal the World, I went on to start another company, um, a grocery delivery company that did not work out great. And I learned from that. But then I started another company Porter and Dale, which was a strategy consulting firm, which worked phenomenally well for me. With in two Ghana? Of, in Ghana. Yeah. With two of my mm-hmm. friends, one a lawyer who's now in Switzerland practicing, and another who was an accountant, building a consulting practice for small businesses and startups, addressing a need that a lot of people didn't even know existed. The majority of businesses in Africa, in Ghana typically, are small mom and pop shops that never scale. They just build for sustenance. A family that's trying to make money enough for themselves and their kids put them through school. And on the other hand, you have the big four consulting firms focused on the multinationals in the minerals exploration, uh, finance, and other areas. And there's this whole gap of what if you could teach people to think beyond the borders The little things, hiring, thinking about product design, thinking about user experience, and moving all of that into building products that grow beyond just you. And that led me to uh, Boating, which is an ethical eyewear company. I met them in 2013 when we started working. I was consulting for them. And these two Ghanaian founders were in Canada starting a company. We worked on the product. We worked on them. They ended up going to Dragon's Den twice, which is the Canadian version of Shark Tank, uh, launching a crowdfunding um, project, redesigning their whole manufacturing uh, system, moving production from Japan to Ghana, worked on a partnership to get World Vision National to donate one pair of glasses for every sale that is done. And that was when I started thinking, There has to be something bigger than just being a big fish in a small pond in Ghana. So I decided I was going to move. I had a visitor's visitor. I had some family here. So I used to come visit. Here in Columbus. I have an uncle who lives here in Columbus and an aunt who lives in New York and two other uncles who live in Kansas City. And I'd visited twice before, but I never really made up my mind to come live here. So I moved here. And it's all new. I lived in the Bronx in New York. I did not like it. Fast, busy city. I didn't know anyone. 
my family here is very traditional. Like nobody goes beyond the norm. My aunt has lived in New York for over 30 years. She's never, never driven downtown. Like she's insulated from whatever. She goes to work and comes back home, drives in her neighborhood for over 30 years. No connections. And then someone tells me, random person, I don't even know who it is. Why don't you move to the Midwest? I heard it's cheaper over there. And so I did. Took a, um, a Greyhound. I had like $200, bought that ticket for 98. Now it's actually cheaper to take a Greyhound. And came here. My uncle gave me a place to stay. Every day for the next two weeks, I will walk from the north side of Columbus, Innocent Westville, and go to East End asking every shop owner if they wanted to give me a job. Yeah. You lived in the north side, like uh, Morris Road area? Or? Yeah, it was uh. um, not Morris Road. It's Westover Road and Agler. That's yeah. where I lived. But yeah, sure, I know it well. And it was a whole new game. If not for the fact that I had some remote clients. By the way, that's not like a short walk. Oh, no, it's not. It's yeah. 1.2 miles. Yeah, so you would walk to Easton mm-hmm. and you would go door to door asking people. This oh, is yeah. how many years ago? This is uh, in 2015. Yeah, so not that long ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and were you having any success? No. Yeah. The person that gave me a job was Limited Brands. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in DC7 in the Reynoldsburg um, mm-hmm. uh, building. Worked in a warehouse. A lot of people don't even know this. I rarely ever talk about uh, what it's been like being here. My visa expired. And so for a period of time, I was undocumented. Luckily for me, the girl I was dating then, um, we ended up getting married, which began my process, uh, getting the green card mm-hmm. and all of that. And that was when I had the opportunity to have my life back. So you're sitting with all of this talent, all of this potential, everything that I've been working on didn't matter. It didn't make a difference if you just don't have the ability to work or do any of that. Because I had foreign clients and I had a remote base, I could still make money. So that was the only saving grace. Mm -hmm. So you got the job at DC7 with all brands. You get married. And in both cases, are those so that you can really um, be here legally? Uh, I'm not sure how much of the job and or the marriage were really about just being able to be here legally. Because it sounds like you knew you could make money based on your foreign relations, Mm -hmm. but you needed to be able to legally stay here. Is that true? Or was it that you, you also needed to make money at the job and there was some other, you know, reasons to get married. So I didn't, I didn't need to be here, but being with the girl was definitely a part of it. Mm-hmm. If I wanted that relationship to last, well, I won't want to be here um, for that. So that was an influencing factor. And also because the whole big dream is to have the opportunity to make it big, to prove to myself, going back to that mindset, that I wasn't just good in Accra. I wasn't just good in Ghana. I wasn't just good in Africa, but I could be good everywhere because the opportunities don't go away. And the craziest part is I recognize a lot more opportunity being a foreigner here because of the depth of my experiences than I even did when I was in here. 
And so that process led me to one, wanting to be here, and then two, focusing on getting back into the startup companies that I wanted to be in. I ended up joining the army because that was a goal of mine um, that by the time I turned 30, I want to be at my fittest. And also because I'd been a cadet, I wanted to prove to myself that I could do a physically challenging process like going through the U.S. Army. And the other part of that was looking for that connection that I craved. I didn't go to school in the U.S. I didn't have an Ivy League education. I didn't have an alumni group that would be a connecting factor. So as an immigrant in a new country, you want to build a community. No one would understand you better than the people that you've gone through military training with, Mm -hmm. the people that you share the same grunt experience with. And that was part of the reason why the Army was so important to me. And also, after having the opportunity to be here, that is the best way I can really give back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so let me just ask you, as you're going through this experience mm-hmm. where you're in New York and it's hard and expensive and then you come here and you're having to walk door to door trying to find a job, you're navigating all of this, you're making decisions, joining the army um, with the mindset of wanting a community are you are you kind of thinking strategically? Are you thinking um, calmly uh, about how you're going to build a life for yourself? Because that's kind of what it sounds like. Yet, you know, in my own mind, I'm thinking in the moment where you're walking the mile and a half every day, going door to door, mostly being told no. You're in this foreign place the Midwest, which is like unlike anything else you've ever experienced. You're a million miles away from your family. You know, to me, that sounds like a wildly like emotional, scary thing that, you know, either your childhood, your parents, your school, everything has just totally prepared you for. And so it's, it's just, you know, kind of, norm again, and you're just so motivated to uh, have what you want for yourself that you just do it and it doesn't bother you, or or it might have been scary as hell. You know, tell me kind of, you know, what it was for you. Was it, was it both? So it was both. Yeah, it, it usually was is. <laughs> very strategic. Um, at the back of my mind is a master plan and a layout for how I want to make my life turn out. You that, knew that. You knew, you knew that you had yeah. a vision. Is it a vision? I, I had a plan. And, for, and was this a written plan or just in your mind? It's good that you asked me that. It was a definitely written plan. Written plan. And, I and wrote you wrote that, that yeah, when? Before I came here. Uh, so, so before you came here, mm-hmm. you decided that you were going to write down what it was that you wanted your life to end up being. And, and just tell me for a second, high level, like summarize, what is it that you chose you wanted your life to be? I wanted to make an impact. I wanted to make an impact that was recognizable, that changed the way people lived, that changed the way people experienced the world. And 
part of that was building the community that I ended up building. And I've had all of these people who've uplifted me. I didn't do any of this by myself. After going through a rough patch for three years, trying to find my feet, doing all this work that I didn't really feel passionate about. I was an arts manager at Craft, uh, then Mars, corporate sentence that I didn't really love. But then I met Tim Radistoff, who hosts um, Start in Line at Ohio State. Through that, I met Azaline Rodriguez, who has started Empowerbus with Jerry Tai. I met Derek DeHart from DACA Time, who was at Root. Now, all of these people that I started meeting, connecting with, talking to, were all people who had, in different ways, shaped their own journeys and had begun to form the pillars of my relationships here. Moved on to Laura Jackson, Haley Burning, and then met Dave Kaplan, and then met Chad. And Chad's background in collections and the experiences that he had seen people go through and how people just wanted the opportunity to get to a better place. And then for me, it was creating what I wish I had. An organization, a group of people, something that would connect me to the opportunities that I knew I was more than capable of contributing to. And that's how Restart kind of came about. Because now... Yeah, so just just for a second, um, tell everybody, what is Restart? And uh, yeah, I want want to make sure we, you know, fully... Uh, get in the right plug, and okay. and it's not a plug because it's it's really profound work that your entire journey has led to, and and th- this is kind of where I I wanted to arrive, and mm-hmm. and where you're arriving, and where things are continuing to unfold for you um, as you planned, which you know I think is really really important, uh, and we'll, we'll come back to that, but you know tell everybody what is restart. So re- restart is a workforce development company that is reinventing the way people find and grow their careers. And I'll elaborate. Every one of us, you, me, every one of your employees has three main relationships that are significant. You have a place where you sleep. You're either renting or you have a mortgage company that owns your home. You have a place where you get healthcare, a clinic, a doctor's office, a hospital system. You also have a financial institution where you're either keeping your money or borrowing money from. As it is today, all those relationships are pretty much transactional. We think of them in an isolated setting of our life. I had those relationships when I moved here. What if those relationships meant a lot more than just transactions? And that was how we started thinking about what we want to restart to be. Restart helps businesses provide value to their customers beyond a transaction. We connect their customers to better career opportunities so they're able to meet their financial obligations with them. And I'm going to use your company as an example, our partnership with Gravity. Gravity is not just a place where people come to live 
stay entertained, get yoga classes. It's also a place that is invested in the careers of the people who live here. They need to pay rent for your company to grow. They need to pay rent so they have a place to stay. They all depend on their incomes to be able to make this rent. Now, what they're getting when they choose to live in this community is a place that's not just taking the rent, but the place that is also investing in the ability to pay the rent. So the next time someone who lives here is looking to negotiate for a higher salary, they know that they have a workforce development team that Restart provides that is helping them negotiate and navigate that journey. When they're trying to move and switch careers, they know they have a team of coaches and advisors and the resources to connect them to the next employer that is a fit for their career. When they're looking for someone to review their resume, edit their resume, give them guidance and support, something that will cost them $400 at the least on LinkedIn to get a private person to do that, they now have that for free because Gravity sponsors that. Yeah. So so I think, you know, it's really a few things come to mind here before we wrap up. Regarding Restart, you know, as I said, who not how is a concept that Chad and I both have embraced from Strategic Coach. Um, and then there's this collaboration component where, you know, you're bringing who's together um, to figure out how to make an impact in this case. And certainly gravity is really focused on impact. You know, we say it's well-being, expression, and impact. And the impact piece is really on the human being and on the community here at Gravity and in Columbus and Franklinton and beyond the world, aspirationally, you know, Coffin Development, we said our opus is really to um, build high design communities focused on expression, impact, and well-being so that we can change the world. And we believe that we can. We can make our dent in it at least, um, do our part. And so a collaboration with you uh, at Restart is a really important part of this because you cannot do it by yourself. It has to be in collaboration with other people. And I think what makes Restart and you, because they're you know, a reflection of who you are and who Chad is and who your team is, is really that there's a sincerity uh, uh, to really make a difference. That you're not just trying to place people in jobs like a typical uh, recruiting firm would. You are actually solely motivated or you know, at the core as who you are as individuals focused on how you make a difference in somebody's life and a difference in the community. And you're using a set of tools and expertise and networks to um, help them navigate that. So I, I just, you know, thank you for that. And it's, and it's really powerful because you're helping us achieve our goals. Uh, so it's an amazing, it's an amazing company. Uh, and, you know, I come back to kind of the, as you plan this, you know, you, you chose uh, strategically to write out um, before you make the move 
uh, here to a foreign land to to want to make an impact and to to make a difference in the world. Uh, I, I find it to be really important just to highlight that you 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 chose to use your entire experience, this everything you've shared with us, uh, to to write out how you are going to use that. And you've literally slugged through it all, despite the fact that you could have stayed at home, a big fish in a small pond, doing pretty big things. You could have done that, but you chose to come here to be poor, to have to hustle and do jobs that were beneath you in your experience, to join the army, to do things you, you, you didn't have to do, you had maybe already done, uh, to build towards that plan. And I know you're continuing to do that, but I think restart is a big part of achieving this plan and it'll continue to unfold for you. And personally, I'm just um, very grateful to have heard your story and to know that there are people like you here in Columbus um, that are friends that have a history that most people don't know and maybe on a day-to-day basis ignore. I mean, maybe they just see you in the color of your skin and they don't give you the opportunity to really be everything that you are or to, to know that about you. And, and I think that's just a reality uh, that happens, even if it's not intentional. You have a, a, a profound history, Sam, and you're living it out here at a young age. And I find it to be inspiring and phenomenal. And I, I'm, I'm especially grateful to just hear you share that today and to know you. And uh, I want to be continually supportive of that because I know that star will you know, shine brightly. Um, you know, it's blindingly bright for me already. Uh, so I wanted to share that with you. Uh, is there anything else that you feel you want to make sure that you share before we wrap up? Um, and that can include any website, social media, anything that you want to share um, to make sure our listeners can find you, but you know, also just anything else that, that you want to make sure you, you leave here today. So thank you for the invitation. Um, you have been an amazing person to me, um, both from afar and up close. I remember the first time um, we sat in that BTL uh, room in a session, and my one question was, I really wanted to find out if everything I've had about you, if the accolades, if it was as true as it is, and you realized it wasn't. <laughs> well, I, I I realized that it was even more than that, <laughs> and the, I don't BS anyone. But you you are fascinating in the way you really look at what you're creating, and for a lot of reasons. And so when you mentioned that, maybe I get underestimated in some places. Maybe. Um, 
people choose to ignore the different layers of um, who I am. But it goes back to that, um, that training, that indoctrination, that growing up, that there really is nothing that you cannot will yourself to do. And if you have the right motivations, and for me, it's not the money, because like I mentioned, I speak six languages. I went to business school. I could have worked for any financial institutions. I love investments. I love math. Um, but I didn't. My friends work at the World Bank. Um, some of them work for big IT companies. Having people be the reason um, for what drives me, for what drives Restart, and the people that I've met along the way, the fascination with your story, with the other people that I meet here in Columbus, so many individuals working on so many different ideas, that is what makes this place so special to me. That's what makes you special to me. And I just wanted to use this opportunity to say thank you for your support, um, for this city's support um, in everything that we've done. And the only thing that I would ask would be that people really start to think about what they can do in their own small ways about changing this city, which will become a reflection of what America can learn from here as we become the social enterprise capital of America. It's very important that people find their own ways to contribute to that, you know. And if they never knew how to do that, um, join restart.com. You could just reach out and talk to any one of us and we'll figure out a way to work with you. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I really, really appreciate it. I wasn't fishing for compliments, but I, I will take that yeah, in. It's very helpful and fueling and inspiring to hear. So um, thank you for that and for joining me here today. It's been awesome, Sam. I love what you're doing, who you are. And um, yeah, uh, I think there's a long, long journey ahead. And, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's exciting and it's bright and it's going to allow what's been behind to continue to serve you and serve the world. So uh, I think uh, that's a wrap, but, but uh, thank you. It's been, it's been fun. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.